Hey everyone, welcome to Climb by VSC. Each week we interview innovative founders, category experts, and the most active climate investors about their perspectives, lessons, and best practices for company building in climate tech. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sandeep Ahuja, who is an investor and syndicate lead of Climate Capital and Duro Ventures. As an investor, Sandeep has invested in hundreds of businesses ranging from GoodX, Substack, Notable Labs, and more recently has been backing leading climate companies including Mosaic, NCX, Arcadia, and many more. We love talking about scaling challenges for climate startups on this show, so I'm excited to dig into Sandeep's experience as an operator and how it informs the kind of founders that he likes to back as an investor. Sandeep is also an author and a content creator, so lots for us to dig into on this episode of Climb. Sandeep, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So let's kick things off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background as an entrepreneur and investor, and specifically how it led you into climate tech investing. For sure. So uh, again, appreciate being here, and I love that the show exists. I'm uh, excited to see uh, folks learn from it. Yeah, background. So started as a as a founder before I became an investor. Co-founded three companies over eight years. All found soft landings. Uh, the climate story begins sort of in 2010. A little bit earlier, if you know the nonprofit Kiva.org, I helped launch Kiva back in the day, and that was kind of, frankly, a turning point in my life where I was like, this is where I want to be. I want to be at the intersection of impact and technology. And as massive as an issue as poverty is, it wasn't calling to me as my issue. My dad worked for Cali RB for 40 years. I grew up hiking and backpacking across the West Coast, and, and climate sort of called to me as, as my thing. And this is 2007. Wasn't really sure what to do about it. But in 2010, the third company I started, I was like, all right, you know, how do we get in this, this mess? It's probably just what we buy, right? It's the stuff we buy. So how do I get people to buy more sustainable products? And so the third company I started was to introduce people to more sustainable products, then realized nobody cares. <laughs> so I kept going with that business and, and leaned a little bit also on, on toxicity and, and whatnot, but realized I needed to help educate just people around climate. Uh, did a, a TV pilot, as you alluded to, around rising sea levels in the Maldives. Wrote a novel about a post-climate change future. Hunger Games meets climate change. It's great. It's on Amazon. You can download it. Had an accelerator called Silicon Climate, where we incubated and accelerated companies, like big companies today, like Arcadia and 12, that back then, I mean, our, our demo days, as exciting as these ideas were, were empty from, even though I have a decent network, just because no one really cared about climate. So that's kind of the story from starting companies to becoming an investor. Really in 2010, I started investing in friends' companies. 2015 was my first climate investment in Mosaic, which I'd been advising for a little while. And then 2018, I realized, wow, there's this sort of second coming of climate companies. I can really focus on, on investing in climate. And that's when Climate Capital was born. Yeah, so you invest out of two funds now, Duro Ventures and Climate Capital. I know we're going to focus most of our conversation on Climate Capital, but maybe give us an overview of both the, the stage, the check size, and, and the kind of companies that, that you like to look at. Totally. So as alluded to earlier, the first checks I wrote were into friends' companies. The first check was a zero. The second check was to Good Eggs, or sorry, Good Reads, which ended up selling Amazon. So I'm like, oh, I'm good at this. We're at one out of two. And so when Naval launched Angela Syndicates, I was like on the platform, I was like, hey, Naval, this is amazing. How do I become the impact syndicator on the platform? And he's like, hey, we just launched this, just bring the steals. So they're bringing two of the first five deals to the platform. As a result, Naval put me into Forbes. Uh, Tim Ferriss was also there and he wanted to make the point, you don't have to be Tim Ferriss, you can be this nobody named Sandeep Ahuja who's bringing deals on the platform. And ever since then, just the deal flow started coming. And so I decided to put a brand on it called the Duro Ventures. And most of it was just syndicates, a little bit of personal money and then LP capital. I didn't actually start a, a fund until I think 2018 and it was a micro fund, but it, you know, First fund, second fund, third fund. But as I mentioned, 2018 is also when I started switching to climate capital. And so 
once I realized I had enough momentum in climate and climate syndicates, I launched the Climate Capital Fund. So today I, I do have two rolling funds on AngelList. Climate Capital is the bigger one, the one that gets most of my attention. But I, I've developed a, a team on AngelList called DVC, about a, 10 partners globally that are doing a lot of non-climate uh, investments. And so when deals come my way that are interesting, sometimes I'll share, sometimes they'll be like, hey, we should invest in this. So the Duro Ventures rolling fund is still going. I'm just not focused on it. I've got an incredible team of people who have access to that fund. For the Climate Capital team, I've also got an incredible group of people under the brand C3, Climate Capital Collective. So what I love about AngelList, to plug that platform for a second, is it really provides this flexibility. I mean, here I am. I've yet to pitch a proper LP, and yet I've got, I'm working with, you know, 20 people across two teams, across, you know, four continents, all deploying capital on the AngelList platform via rolling funds and syndicates. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's certainly uh, amazing when you look about just the last decade of innovation that has happened on the, the back end of building a fund. You know, I feel like the folks that, you know, we went to for advice were like, wow, yeah, you have so many tools available to you now. You mentioned rolling funds, syndicates, and, you know, even with this new crop of emerging managers, I guess talking about how things have changed, what is different about this wave of what we'll call sort of climate tech investing as opposed to maybe, you know, a decade ago when Vinod Kosla and folks were doing green tech and sort of that wave of tech investing? What's different today? What do you feel like has changed? Yeah, uh, and, and I wasn't around back then, but from my understanding, it was a lot of technology investing into hardware that wasn't really to scale. I mean, a lot of it just what, you know, the, the economics didn't end up working out. What's different this time is climate's touching everything. And so it's a lot of business model innovation. It's a lot of resource uh, reallocation. It's a lot of marketplaces. And so climate tech, while there's definitely an incredible amount of, of pure tech investing, and now with changes in how companies are built from AWS to how much more talent there is available to just sort of cost to start a company coming down, combined with just you know, acceleration of technology, there's still incredible amount of work being done in sort of hard tech. And now there's innovation across all sectors, which is partially why Climate Capital is a generalist fund. I mean, we get to invest in fintech and ag and pure hard tech. I've got folks on the team who invest in bio. And it's great because there's innovation across all sectors because A, the problem is that big and B, the opportunity is that big. At the stage where you invest, you know, given that you have backed companies in general tech, we'll say broadly, and then now sort of this world of climate tech, help compare and contrast that a little bit. Are there specific idiosyncrasies with climate founders or climate companies that you see, or do you feel like it's sort of largely the same rubric that you're investing on? So one thing that, so Dura Ventures, if you go to the website, we talk about backing mission-driven founders. Some of the first companies I got involved with were companies like Change.org, started by my friend Ben, Indiegogo, started by my friend Slava. These are actually people who I met in a business sense and they became friends because they were so mission-minded and I was attracted to their mission and wanted to help. And so before climate, I would still try to find companies where the founder was so mission-driven that he or she would inspire me to get involved. And I just felt like it would have a competitive advantage in attracting talent. I mean, in a world where capital is relatively commoditized, sort of mission really, and the ability to attract talent, I think was an attractive thing when investing in non-climate. In climate, it's amazing because every company is a mission-driven company, right? And so every founder, I mean, or nearly every founder, like <laughs> actually there's only one exception. I met my first pure financial motivated climate founder a couple months ago and it was caught me off guard he was like we're gonna make so much money here i'm like whoa 
great. This is I'm happy to hear that, but like money was definitely number one and climate was too and it caught me off guard. Because almost every other founder I meet is so much like I was brought into climate because of this or I was been in climate for 10 years and been researching this. And so that's the big delta. I think broadly between general tech and climate check tech is climate tech investors are nearly all mission driven. Whereas before for when I was mostly doing Duro, I had to really find those mission driven founders. Do you think that mission-driven component benefits them in certain ways? I mean, I mainly think of attracting employees. There's an interesting article on protocol, I think just this morning that said that employees are starting to leave, you know, the sort of big fang, meta, Amazon companies to seek opportunities in climate tech. Are there ways that that sort of mission-driven founder-led approach has benefited the climate companies that you've worked with? Totally. I think so. Uh, attracting talent and capital is definitely one huge thing. But two, it keeps you motivated through the dark days, right? Like, you know, some of the companies that I've invested in or been involved with that were more financially motivated. When going gets tough, people start to get annoyed. People start to be like, why am I here? If it's just about the money, then I should go somewhere else. But the climate companies and mission-driven companies generally, the, both the founder and the team, I think, stick it out through tougher times because they're not necessarily there just for the money, right? They're there for the mission and, and that keeps them going. And every startup comes on tough times. Can you talk a little bit about what you evaluate in the founders that you're looking for? I mean, do you have a, a checklist or a hierarchy of things that you look for? Let's just say broadly, not even just the founders, but in the companies that you say, hey, this is a great investment for Sandeep. Founder market fit is a phrase I think that's becoming more and more accepted in common, not just product market fit, but founder market fit. And that's definitely something that I personally look for the most, right? Is this the founder to start this company? assuming the market's big enough. And that comes from what's their why? Is it a personal story? Is it a PhD? Is it a prior company that failed? Like really what is their why for this company? Why are the best person in the world to start this specific company? That's what I spend the most time on is ultimately I invest in founders, not companies. And I also say that the, or the stage we invest in, possibility, not probability. Right. Series A investors invest in probability because it's like, hey, the numbers work, CAC, LTV, et cetera. The stage we invest in, it's possibility. And so it's you're looking for a founder who has a vision, who is uniquely qualified to go after that vision. That's the most important thing. And then it's defensibility, moat, tech defense, et cetera. Yeah, so touching on that piece of sort of tech defensibility, I think one of the things that maybe keeps some general tech investors at bay about climate tech investing is the science involved and the scientific diligence involved in a lot of these businesses that are coming to market. How do you think about that? Not being a climate scientist yourself, how do you think about evaluating and diligencing sort of that part of the technical risk? Yeah, so a couple of things. One, that enables us to oftentimes follow leads who have done said diligence. And I've got great relationships, thankfully, with a lot of these investors. And so I'll be, be like, hey, you know, the fact that they're investing is usually signal enough because I know them and I know the kind of diligence process they have. So that's kind of one way in which we do it is we just follow leads that I trust. The second is we've got now over 200 companies in our portfolio. And so oftentimes I'll ask a founder to be like, hey, what do you think of this? Founder in an adjacent space or founder in the same space, but non-competitive. I've even had founders get on phone calls and interview a founder I'm looking at to sort of, hey, and then hey, how did that call go? What do you think? I've done this a dozen times. Following a lead who's done the diligence, tapping into my network, typically founder but also outside my network to help with diligence. And then third, I mentioned uh, C3. So to spend a second on it, Climate Capital Collective, you know, once I realized, oh my gosh, there's so much more deal flow coming in 2018, 2019. What do I do? How do I expand the team? Given the flexibility of AngelList to run syndicates where carry can be assigned in a way that leads can run their own deals and get majority economics, I was able to attract an incredible group of people who could have started their own syndicates and are starting their own funds now to sort of come under the banner of, look, let's share resources, let's share deal flow, let's share diligence, et cetera. And so I've got a PhD now who's on the team, specifically focused on SynBio. I've got a chemical engineer on the team who's 
comes in, you know, the battery science. So point is, is we've been able to sort of build this team under the C3 umbrella of experts in various domains who kind of defer to them. And if they get excited, I'll, I'm in if they're in kind of a thing. I love that. I mean, that, that's sort of a really important piece of building a firm. And, you know, us as BSC Ventures is a new firm. We think about that a lot, right? How do we augment the things that we know to then better serve our founders? And so I love the idea of one, relying on co-investors who you know are deep in the science, deep in the tech, but then also having sort of that skill set augmented on your team. You've backed 150 plus companies uh, since the inception of the syndicate and climate capital. Can you talk about one or two that uh, particularly stick out to you and you know what convinced you that they were right for investment for you? I hate and love this question. And I saw it preview and I'm like, my answer is always the same, which is Mosaic because it's my first, right? It's easy to say that was my, or I, could, or I could talk about my most recent, but I'm just going to go with Mosaic since it's my first. I mean, look, you know, when I, I mentioned Kiva, frankly, one of the ideas I had when I was leaving Kiva was actually crowdfunding, crowdfunding solar panel installation or crowdfunding green jobs training. It was 2007. And I was co-founding of the company at the time and I didn't really know if either of those were big enough. So I didn't do anything about it. So when I came across Mosaic, Billy and Dan, and they were basically doing crowdfunding for solar, I was like, yes, like I love this. And so became an advisor, started helping and became clear that as much as the idea made sense on paper, execution wasn't really there. Folks were looking for more alpha on their investments, et cetera. And so was thankfully one of the advisors who helped uh, one of several people. And again, they get all the credit, switch company strategy for them to become the company they are today, moving away from crowdfunding and to just financing. So was able to invest in that company. And it's still one of my favorites because again, love the founders, was able to sort of be in the room as they were making some hard decisions. And of course it's doing very well. Yeah, of course. Is there one that you can talk about and you know the name where um, you were so sure that this was oh, yeah. like the right thing and yet you know here we stand uh, whatever time later uh, totally. and you turned out to be wrong well yeah talk to me um, about that process yeah i mean let's, let's see if i can be vague enough here to, so folks don't figure it out i keep coming back to founders right and i'm not again there's a thousand investors who say this but investing in people not not ideas i met these two founders loved them just super smart loved how they were thinking about things and wanted to get involved they didn't have room for me i was like okay i understood first round ended up leading the round and, and you know there was a few other folks and, and no room for me fine stayed in touch, stayed in touch. They were getting ready to sort of expand. They were going to have this big kind of like coming out party and they want to kind of raise some capital ahead of it. And so I was able to come in alongside random investors, including celebrities that you know and, and love. And we were all excited because this was going to happen. And then things changed. The market changed. Their key customer decided to sort of pull out suppliers decided that they actually didn't want to go this route and the company went bust. And you know, great founders, great investors, momentum. And yeah, it happens, right? And you know, thankfully the founders let me back their second company. They're just getting started because again, I believe in them and that they've learned some lessons. It was a market thing and it was a um, shifting, you know, wins thing. It just happens. You know, doesn't mean that it was a bad idea and doesn't mean the founders made any major mistakes. When we think about sort of this broader concept of double bottom line, right? You know, I'm just thinking about more recently, this idea around net zero targets and decarbonization has really come under scrutiny when people talk about carbon credits and how it's letting, you know, enterprises claim net zero, but then really is it actually incrementally moving us forward in, in terms of solving the decarbonization problem? How do you evaluate that with your companies? Do you have a certain rubric on how they are making an impact beyond the top line? Yeah. So the short answer is not quantitatively. At the stage we invest in, I had this philosophy for a while where I'm not trying to impose goals or metrics. Ultimately, they're, they're, if I have a founder I'm investing in that's founder market fit, the next thing is for them to figure out product market fit and meeting any kind of like artificial goals around carbon reduction would get in the way of that, right? So it's all about, look, broadly speaking, directionally, this is a company that's going to reduce carbon in the atmosphere, help us with adaptation, take carbon out of the atmosphere entirely. Like they're directionally doing that, that is good enough for me. 
right? For the stage I invest in. I am so happy that there are funds out there that come in after me that apply that level of rigor because it's important and it should be there. But I believe that that's at the stage, the series A, maybe series C, series B, but definitely I think not at pre-seed or, or even seed. What do you think is behind this shift in LP appetite to invest in climate tech? What's driving all this new money coming into yeah. climate? Yeah, I think it's a couple things. One, I think it's alpha, right? Like, you know, if you think about Sequoias of the world that are starting to move into climate, they're just trying to make their LPs money. If you think about what's really going to drive transformational change over the next decade, short list and then climate's on it. In the same way that mobile was X years ago and, you know, the web was and web three is, right? Like it's a very short list. So part of it, I think is just like, this is where there's going to be alpha. There's undeniable amount of change and that's going to breed opportunity. So that's one. Two, I think you have an incredible amount of LPs, not your traditional LPs per se, but family offices that are newly formed or high-end individuals who realize that they can make money and make a difference, right? Like I personally think it's so no-brainer to invest in venture-scale climate solutions because you're getting your venture upside and you're addressing climate change. Like why wouldn't you do that, right? If climate was underperforming, that might factor in, but I don't think it is, and I don't think it's going to. Again, I think it's gonna outperform. So I think that's part of it also, is you have this new crop of LPs who can make that choice to sort of care about climate in addition to returns. And then finally, I think you're starting to see pressure on the institutions, uh, the old school institutions, to pay attention to this category. Going back to when I was trying to figure out what had to address climate change back in 2007, eight, my dad, I mentioned, worked for the Cal ARB. I was like, oh, CalPERS, like there's so much money. How do we like change their minds? And like it takes 15 years, right? Of like slow, 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 slow change. And now you have these massive institutions who've got pressure to like, okay, we need to divest and then invest. So it's all of the above. It's just the perfect storm. Oh, and then if I could say one more thing, you have opportunity to invest in, right? There's so many exciting companies to invest in, which across categories. And so if you're a real estate person, great. There's a real estate climate thing. If you're whatever category you're in, there's now something in that category that is climate related. So even if you felt like, oh, I don't know that space or you know, I don't want to invest in a climate, I only want to invest in prop tech. Great. Now you can invest in prop tech and climate. So you can kind of, I think it's just attracting a lot more innovation and then investors from there. We talked a little bit earlier about founder market fit, and I want to maybe circle back on that because um, I feel like in this category, especially, there's maybe a couple different ways to think about it. What does founder market fit mean for maybe a founder who doesn't come from climate sciences yep. wanting to build a business in climate tech? Part of what I was getting at is you've got prop tech, fintech, You've got people in different who are just applying business model innovation in businesses, so they don't have, have any climate background, but they really know, um, you know, for example, EVs, right? Like I've got a few investors, a few companies in my portfolio that like these are really business model innovations, and so even though they don't come from the car world, they're not car people. They're realizing there's a business model innovation here, and they're applying their finance skill set. So you don't have to at all come from a climate background to be a climate founder. Do you feel like at some point you still need to have that skill set on your team? I, and the reason I say that is like you know, at a certain point, finance financing climate solutions, financing somebody to green their home or green their sure. cars sort of moves in one direction. I guess like, is that enough, right? Are we as consumers able to solve this problem on our own? Or do we really need to actually get founders building at large scale for decarbonization, for alternative you know, energy and things like that? Or can we have these sort of incremental solutions as well? 
yes, we yeah. as individuals need to make climate conscious choices and we absolutely need founders who are going to make it easy for us, right? For example, Inflation Reduction Act just passed. There's a lot of capital that's going to be available, from my understanding, I'm not ready yet, to electrify the home. Where do we start, right? Like it's a project that I'm going to be taking on myself without getting into details why I didn't do it before, but I'm going to do it now. And it's like, I'm excited that some of these companies that have been pitching me, I'm going to become customers of to help me do it, right? They're just making it a little easier. Sometimes it's that little easier that makes all the difference between doing it and not. There's another company in my portfolio that's helping folks decarbonize their 401k right? It's like, I'm sure a lot of people think like, I really should do this, but in busy life. And now there's a company that's just going to make it that much easier. And you're actually going to do it now, right? So a lot of these companies are just helping regular consumers fulfill their natural desires and intentions, but they just don't get around to doing right because they're making yeah. it easier. I appreciate you actually did get the did get the question that I was asking, which is basically, you know, you invest across the gamut of these climate solutions. And it's always tough when we see these companies that it feels like are making sort of incremental changes, yep. right? And yet, as I think venture investors, it can't all be moonshots at a certain level. I mean, it depends on your fund structure. There are these companies that are still making a difference. It just comes back to the question of like, is that difference measured? Are we actually moving the ball forward? Let's look at unicorns and success stories of non-climate tech in the last 10 years, right? Like, you know, companies like Stripe or companies like Robinhood and companies like Airbnb. I mean, they weren't pure technology companies. There's obviously a lot of technology there, but like you know, one was a business yeah. model innovation. One was, if, you know, removing fees. Um, I don't really know the nuances of Stripe, how the plumbing works, but like looking at how successful these companies are, it's not like they were, you know, hard tech innovation that like became massive. There were just like, I think nuances in that public was ready to sort of adopt, right? The public is ready to like zero fees. Amazing. I'm all about on, on Robinhood and Airbnb like, yeah, like why not use spare capacity for this? And there's a lot of sort of Airbnb of um, even happening within climate tech right now. And so, yeah, I don't think you have to be a, a hard climate solution to be a massive company. I think business model innovation, there's a lot of moats being built, marketplaces being built. I mean, even just marketplaces, right? Like that's an age old, that's beginning of time type of business model that is being applied now you know, within climate world that I think are gonna be massive companies, just yeah. marketplaces mar and, and niche so marketplaces, right? Like, you know, marketplaces for stuff like the way metals are moved around and plastics move around. And each of these are their own company that like most people are never gonna hear about, but there are massive Massive companies being built as climate change affects these industries and as the need for these new marketplaces emerge in all these niche industries, right? Given the breadth of the companies that you are investing in or the range of the companies you're investing in, how do you think about this idea of value add? I think we fundamentally believe founders are expecting more than just capital, but yeah. when you have such a wide portfolio, how are you able to, to provide that value add? Yeah, that's a great question. The value add thing, as much as it's made a joke of, so true. Like, you know, I, before every founder call, I start off with, let me introduce myself and how I support portfolio founders. Like it's definitely a two-way conversation. It's not the one-way pitch. It's a two-way pitch every founder call. And, and in emails, it's like, I have my blurb, like just like, cause they have their blurb on what they do. Here's my blurb on what I do. And I send it all the time. Like here's how I can help. And, and here's how I do help and how I have helped. Yeah, I mean, look, the short answer is by being responsive. Yes, I've got a lot of portfolio companies, but I'm not in, on, in boards and I'm sitting on boards. And so I don't want to get in anyone's way. Every time there's an investor update that comes out with investor asks, I scan, a lot of them are hiring. I've invested in six hiring platforms for this very reason. So I'm like, great, here's some hiring resources for you. Oftentimes it's, can you connect me with so-and-so? I've got a network, if I can't, I'll help a team of all, all these angel LPs that I'll sometimes tap for that. You know, that's probably 60 to 70% of asks that come from founders. It's like hiring and, oh, sorry, fundraising, hiring and, and key relationships. And fundraising is what I do all day long, right? If I'm not helping founders, if I'm investing in founders, I'm oftentimes helping them connect to other investors in my uh, other investors that I've worked with. I have an email that actually goes out to about 50, 60 GPs every week with kind of what we're seeing at the early stage so that I can email all of them when my companies are fundraising 
I have that relationship, right? So I've just got them down, right? Like I've got my like, great, let me chime in on your spreadsheet. Boom, boom, boom. Here's who I can introduce you to. Send me a forward email. And then if you think about, even though that many companies, like the ones that really need help that often, that's the end. I still have a lot of spare time, right? Being on top of all my portfolio companies because most of the time they're just doing what they're doing. Like they don't want an investor poking around. They're like, leave me alone. I know what I got to do. Just help where I, where I need help. I'm like, great, I'm here to help. So I guess on the, the idea of helping, you know, we have climate founders that listen to our show. What is a common mistake or some common pitfalls that you see founders make when they are pitching a VC for funding? Totally. I'll also mention that now when founders ask for PR, I point them to you, right? It, so much of it is I have my go-to list because the founders often ask the same thing. And so it's like, oh, I just picked this off the shelf and pick this off the shelf and pick this off the shelf and... and and that way I can be responsive. I'm, I'm often told I'm per dollar invested, the most helpful investor uh, on cap tables. And I've many thankfully kind founders who've said unsolicited kind words about me being so responsive. So back to your question about what should founders be looking for? Yeah, I mean, look, I think one thing, a lot of funds have ownership needs because they work for their LPs and they need to own X percent. And I find that frustrating as an early stage investor who's trying to give that small check that sometimes as little as 10K, like there's one investor, one founder I was chatting with we had a great conversation. He's like, oh, this one fund might take the whole round. And I'm like, well, if you can carve out 10K of this round, here's all the things I can do for you. And the, the investor was like, nope. And the founder didn't want to push back. I'm like, I mean, even to that investor that wanted the full 500K, I'm like, if you invested 490, you could have brought on so much more value for this founder, right? It's in your best interest as a fund to carve out as little as 10, 25, 50K to bring some people on, not just myself. There's so many other angels investors who can help in so many ways. It's, this founder and I, and specifically, had already talked about all the things that I could do for him. So that's the biggest thing I'd say is to founders is like, put together a team. You're not, you know, yes, pick the best lead investor, very important, but don't forget to save room for all the other folks who are gonna write smaller checks, but can be really helpful with what you need. And if there's any question about, can they be helpful? Get it up front, right? Like, hey, angel investor, I'd love for you to come in with 10, 20, 50. Can you make sure that you can help me with these intros? Like have that spreadsheet of, intros you want or hiring needs and have them kind of pre-qualify to be on your cap table by giving you information like that's you absolutely should be doing that both for to make sure you're bringing on the right team and then to go to your lead and say look they're really going to help i have proof carve out 100k or 250k so i can bring them on and we can build a bigger company that is absolutely music to our ears and i think you know that's in the like my philosophy is that these one-stop shop sort of funds are going to start going out of vogue basically and it's great like it's nice to go to a place where they have a very large platform and they do hiring and they do pr and they do you know operational assistance and what i tend to find is like they're really only best in class at like one maybe two of those things because it's hard. It's it's hard as, you know, even a 300, $400 million fund to be doing everything at sort of an A plus level. And so my belief is very much the same as yours is that the best founders are realizing, okay, I need a lead fund who has expertise in this category and is going to be a great signal for me when I go out to raise my next round because they've been on my board and they've spoken well of me. But then I need to go and get, you know, a fund that is focused on PR and a fund that is focused on, you know, maybe hiring in this category or their ex operators that can really assist me in how I build and scale my team. And it's about sort of assembling those Avengers yourself, right? As opposed to going, going to one place and expecting that they're really gonna do everything for you because ultimately, at least in my experience, that rarely happens. You're rarely getting everything from one place. And so it's always nice to hear you echo that. You know, let's talk about incentives, right? Like if that investor that put in half a million is pro rata, you know, sure they're gonna help you 
because they, you know, they want to see you succeed, but they don't have to hustle to get on the next round, right? Versus the smaller checks, like we need to hustle. We need to prove our worth in order to get in the next round because we don't have Pareto. So not only are we pre-qualifying with like, here's what we're gonna do with help. If we know if we don't, we're not in on the next one, right? So folks are even that much more incentivized to, to help when they come in with small checks, I think. Let's pivot away from the funding side for a second. So you've been in the world of content creating as well. You mentioned at the top that you had worked on some climate-focused entertainment about water levels in the Maldives. Talk a little bit about that and then maybe, you know, where you feel like there's a shortage of climate content and maybe what we can do to get more people to care. Totally. You know, it's, it's been fun to watch the content world approach climate because you have to avoid doom and gloom, right? No one wants to watch doom and gloom and no one wants to, well, some people do, but doom and gloom, uh, you know, I think is one of those, it's not gonna necessarily be a blockbuster. And then, and then you also wanna avoid being trite, right? Like climate change is so talked about now that to do a movie about climate change, just about climate change, it feels like, oh, it's an eye roll. It's like, oh, it's another one. And so you gotta walk this line. And so some of the movies that I've seen that touch on climate change, it's like two sentences in the movie, right? The whole movie is about something else, but like the why, that one moment, it's like, oh yeah, how'd we get here to climate change? Like, I love those things. Cause it's like, it's sort of a nod to like, you know, climate change is important. It needs to be addressed. And yet we're really just trying to make a blockbuster movie and entertain people, you know? So that's kind of been fun to watch sort of people tiptoe that. Um, but you know, it's all that said, I don't know what the rest of the world sees when it comes to climate change. I only know what us in America see. And I'm curious, I wonder, right? Like, you know, in, in China and in India, especially, right? These two massive countries, like, are those populations being made aware about climate change? And that's when I think about content, I think less about you know, the US and Europe, because I feel like there's momentum that's been built. But I scratch my head and I wonder like, what's going on in those countries? And, and even in, in parts of Africa, recognizing that it's not top of mind, right? There's so much other thing, so many other things around poverty alleviation and education, so many other things that need to matter and record heat waves. Like it's undeniable that it's be, that it is affecting their lives. So probably not the answer you want, but when I think about content and climate, I don't think about renting another movie or whatever. I think about if I had time, I would go in and dig into those three geos and see what I might be able to do in those three geos. Yeah. I mean, I think the big challenge is maybe a psychological one, right? So maybe like given that we come from the world of storytelling and we think about this a lot, like those numbers are sort of hard to fathom, right? When you mm -hmm. think about a two degree Celsius increase in you know, global temperature, or you think about, you know, millions of hectares of land, like just big numbers at that level are just hard for populations to comprehend. And yet when you break it down to like the consumer level, it's like, oh, you know, turn off your AC or don't use plastic straws. And so to me, it always feels like there is this gap and maybe it's one that speaks to like the idea of like climate activism. I think some of the most interesting content that I've at least seen is ones that talk about like climate inequity. And actually mm -hmm. what's happening when you look at parts of the world that are most affected and then the impact that it has on farmers and, you know, blue collar workers and where they live and how they live. And it sort of humanizes the story as opposed to saying, well, that's a 0.5 degrees Celsius right. increase. Right. And like, that means something 40 years from now. So that was, so last glimpse, the TV pilot in the Maldives was supposed to be a, or it was a pilot for a series. We were going to go and we had a whole book of episodes. We we're going to go look at beer industry, how the beer industry being, being affected to, you know, how the ski resorts are being affected. Like go around the world and show like these industries that are being affected by climate change 
be it rising sea levels, be it biodiversity loss. In a way, to your point, humanizes the impact, right? By you meet these people, see how their livelihoods are being changed and the hope they have, right? That's the sort of balance between you want to paint a picture of reality and also, look, there's hope. If anybody here is watching, we still have a, I think, a 10 pilot uh, pitch we can send you on uh, what Last Glimpse could be. We, we got to find some people to get this made because I would love, you know what? That's like a, a great pickup for Disney Plus or Netflix. So hopefully totally. somebody out there is, uh, is watching. We're ready to go. Awesome. So, you know, we were going to close on this, but uh, but I always love to end with this question, especially with folks that have had a career as varied and diverse as yours. What is a piece of advice that you would like to give to your younger self? Yeah. And, and as mentioned, this was the hardest question. And, and you told me I'd be ready after 35 minutes and I'm still not. Yeah. I mean, something along the lines of stay the course or don't worry, it's going to be okay. I mean, you know, you mentioned a varied career. Yeah, I was a banker and then I was like, I don't want to be a banker. So I left banking to go be a product manager. And I was like, product manager is great, but I'm young. I'm going to do something fun. So I want to be an actor. And like, okay, acting's fun, but you know, I kind of want to go start a company. So starting companies, fun. and like, I've, I've, you know, a climate, uh, how do I get people to care about climate? I'm going to write a book. And, and so I've done all these things. And, and to my parents' dismay, you know, had trajectories that I've like, eh, I'm done with this, you know, and like start at the bottom every single time. And there was a lot of doubt, a lot of fear, a lot of like, what am I doing? I'm like X years old and I'm, you know, starting at zero. And so thankfully I'm at a place where I can look back and say, Hey, you know, just like Steve Jobs said, looking back, it all makes sense. And it does, right? Like each of those experiences, I wish I'd done more. Right. So the advice to my former self or younger self, it's like, you know, keep exploring, stay the course. Don't worry. Like it's all going to be fine. And I know it's easy to say now, thankfully things are, are, you know, so far so good. I don't know if that's the answer. I don't know if that's advice, but that's, that's what I'd tell my younger self. No, it, it really isn't. You know, the reason I love asking this question is because I think it mirrors so much of the entrepreneur's experience, right? Like a lot of these folks that pitch us over the years, I mean, they are so smart, they're so capable, and they could be making, I don't know, half a million dollars a year working at some big tech company, you know, running a division or something. And yet they're choosing to do the really hard thing, the, the starting at zero, the going from zero to one. And so sometimes it's just as simple as that, which is like that faith in yourself that pushed you to go start this thing, keep that keep that yeah. faith and I love that point about like pushing through the doubt is what allows you to to be in the position that you are and be here to give that advice so I know I appreciate the honesty. there's no wrong or right answer to the question but I do appreciate the honesty and it's Sandeep I want to thank you again for joining us on climb we are so grateful for everything that you shared today I think my biggest takeaways were one that climate tech investing is really touching everything it's touching every industry and that's really the big change that we've seen from you know green tech investing in the past and the other being that business model innovation is just just as important as some of the hard tech and hard science work that is still very much needed. But if we're able to make consumer adoption and access to you know, more green alternatives easier, there's billion dollar businesses to be built there. So those are gonna be my two big takeaways for today. Sandeep, thank you so much for joining us on Climb and we look forward to your continued success at Climate Capital. Thank you, Jay. Bye everybody.